Hello, and welcome to the Employee Theft Hub podcast. My name is Greg Wood. I'm an attorney in San Francisco, California. Uh, I've been practicing civil litigation in San Francisco for 20 years, specifically in the areas of um, trade secrets and um, embezzlement cases, both plaintiff and defense. Uh, And so uh, what I would like to do with this podcast, the Employee Theft Hub podcast, is bring together some other people that I've worked with and people that I haven't that are in the employee theft area, either trade secrets or embezzlement. And, uh, you know, ask them questions, see if they can tell us some uh, fun stories, um, then see what we can learn uh, from their various experiences. So uh, we'll get right to it. And uh, like I said, welcome. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to email me, gwood at woodlitigation.com. My first ever podcast guest will be um, another attorney in San Francisco, California, who I've known for many years. His name is David H. Schwartz. Um, David has uh, also has considerable experience in the trade secret arena. Uh, we've worked on some cases together. Uh, and he's, uh, in addition to trade secrets, he does RICO cases, securities cases, lots of cases involving um, partners and uh, close corporations where one one partner's uh, tried to cut out or somehow exclude the other. Um, and so he's got a lot of experience, um, both in the trade secret realm, but also in, in some other realms. Very interesting guy, well-read, um, smart guy. So um, I think you'll enjoy hearing from him. Uh, and so here we go, we'll get started. Okay, we are uh, here with uh, recording with David Schwartz an attorney in San Francisco, California. Hi, David. Hey, Greg. Great to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, here we are with our uh, first podcast here, so we're going to do our best. Um, anyway, David, I've known David for many years, um, as I said, and uh, we've uh, practiced, had some cases together, so happy to uh, pick his brain about trade secrets um, and hopefully we can learn a few things. So, uh, David, why don't you go ahead and tell us, uh, you know, where you went to law school, give us your website bio, um, you know, pick and choose what you want people to know. Well, I, uh, I went to law law school at Hastings college of law in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, let's see my first, job out of law school, I got hired as uh, to assist in a criminal trial that was going on in Marin County that ended up lasting about two and a half years. And um, um, that, so I, and I wanted to do criminal law, so that I was, it was great experience for that. And I stayed with the same firm that was uh, defending on that case, uh, which was primarily a personal injury firm. And so I did some personal injury and uh, we had a close relationship with Melvin Belli's firm. So we got a lot of work through, we got a lot of work through Melvin Belli and saw some of uh, how he did trials, which was very instructive. Um, yeah, and so you, you I started doing more, more business uh, related stuff and uh, eventually gave up on the 
personal injury and focused on business and commercial litigation. And you've been uh, practicing for how long now? Uh, too long. I mean, <laughs> yeah, a long you know, time. Long time. I, I remember. You're not, you're, what, huh? you're not in your no. third year. When I first went to the San Francisco courthouse, there are pterodactyls perched on the roof. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ice was melting from the last age. Um, so, uh, Melvin Belli, not not trade secret related, but uh, obviously a high profile, interesting character. Uh, you have any uh, interesting stories or? things you learned from uh, being around him in his sphere? Well, I think he, on the positive side, he was most, I mean, he, he was an amazing courtroom figure. I've never seen any lawyer um, dominate a courtroom the way he did. When he was in the courtroom, everything revolved around him. He just had that sort of knack of uh, knowing how to do that. So, uh, and he was, uh, you know, he, he was very aggressive and bold in his courtroom practice, but effective. And how about uh, outside of the courtroom? Uh, any interesting <clears throat> stories oh. from being around him? Well, he was, he was a fat, he, he was an incredible marketer of himself. And uh, uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, after the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake, his building was condemned, so no one could go in it, go inside it to to work. So he uh, announced that he was going to have provide free consultations to San Francisco residents on earthquake-related legal matters. I think it was on, he was going to do that on a Saturday morning starting at 10. And he had uh, somebody bring out his uh, uh, French antique desk and chair, and he sat there at, at 10 a.m. on the sidewalk in his uh, three-piece suit with his gold watch fob in his pocket. And... Um, uh, waited for people to come up and ask him legal questions. And the first people who arrived were representatives of the major television networks, which is, I think, what he expected all along. And they, he made the national news that, you know, pretty much at the top of, of the hour, news hour for that day. So a guy that could really... Uh command media attention yeah, absolutely yes he commanded he, he was he knew how to get attention i have not tried that to get new clients but i will <laughs> i'll think about it putting the desk out on market street seems a little <laughs> seems like it's going to get me arrested or something but uh it's an idea it's an idea um, let's talk about trade secrets. That's what you're here for. You've, uh, I know you've been practicing uh, trade secrets, um, litigation, uh, misappropriation cases on both sides, plaintiff and defense for many years. Um, and just going back through all your cases in your mind, is, is there one that stands out that was sort of um, you know, a, a really interesting uh, and really hot case um, from that set? Well, um, 
Yeah, there's one that that I like uh, that I think about or talk about a lot because it uh, had some interesting le- legal issues and I think made some interesting law in California on trade secrets. So it was a case where uh, there was. Uh, uh, yeah, without fought, without without telling us who the the names right. of the parties. The, yeah. So there were involved? five. Yeah. So who was involved? There were five investment advisors working for an investment advising com- advisory company, and uh, they wanted to. Uh, th- they all had large uh, books of business. Um, which they had developed while working at the, that company, uh, but they felt oppressed by uh, the share of the advisory fees that uh, the company took from, and they they wanted freedom from it. So they wanted to uh, uh, a way to set up an independent company and keep their business. And they were concerned because the the person they worked for ran the advisory company was very litigious, and um, they expected that he would sue them. So we advised them about how to leave, what steps were to leave, and they left. Um, and let me ask: Did they go to they, another firm, or did they start? Their oh, own they started firm their or? own. They started their own firm. Okay. So. Uh, they left, and um, they sent out notices uh, to their clients, telling their clients that they had started their own firm. And um, then they got sued for trade secret misappropriation, uh, stating that the information that they used to contact their clients uh, was a trade secret of their former employer. So um, the former employer got a preliminary injunction against them, uh, preventing them from using uh, the information they had about the contact information for their clients to solicit the clients. And... Um, well, more specific, I think I know the case you're talking about. Um, it, didn't the injunction prohibit them from? Uh, well, correct me. Did they? Did the injunction prohibit them from soliciting clients or using information? Soliciting their clients. Period. Yes. So the the injunction was broad in the sense that uh, it said you cannot call you know John Doe because John Doe was a client of the old firm. So it prohibited the the guys that that your clients from contacting any clients from the old firm? Well, on the basis that they, yes, that they had obtained the, they had the information as to who the clients were and how to contact them was a trade secret. That was, that, I think that underlay, underlay the, the, uh, uh, the injunction. Uh, but the prohibition was, a flat prohibition against the solicitation. Got it. Got it. So uh, shutting these guys down from sending any more of the letters that you just talked about. Yes. So they, right. Or making uh, phone calls, trying to get the people to come over. Right. 
And so uh, what did you do when the, um, when the trial court issued this injunction? What was the next step for you guys? So we filed uh, a writ petition, petition, uh, writ petition for uh, mandate uh, to, uh, uh, on the preliminary injunction. And um, that was initially denied by the Court of Appeal. We filed a petition for review to the state Supreme Court, which ordered the Court of Appeal to uh, issue an order to show cause and hear the writ petition. Um, And so I think taking the hint, the Court of Appeal granted uh, the relief we asked for. And basically we were saying you can't enjoin the solicitation of uh, clients in California because that violates the public policy uh, of uh, in, the, in the business and professions code that uh, protects everyone's right to practice the profession or business of their choice. And uh, of course, as we're recording now, I'm going to get it wrong, but is that business and profession code 16600? Yes. Okay, so so the court came down uh, in your favor and said uh, the injunction is too broad. Um, maybe you could enjoin using information that's been in some way determined to be a trade secret, but you can't just ban these people from calling these people or contacting. Yeah, I, that, I, I don't remember the specific language in the opinion, but the 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 opinion said. And our argument, which the court accepted, was you can prohibit the use of trade secret information, but you can't prohibit the solicitation. It would have to be rewritten, which I don't think it ever was really rewritten, to say you cannot use any trade secret information. Um, And uh, one of the things that we contended and ultimately were successful on it in defending the case was that the contact information um, for the advisory clients was not a trade secret because uh, of the way in which uh, uh, investment advisory businesses work. You you have the investment advisor, but then you have a custodian of the accounts for each client. And that custodian uh, was a separate company, uh, a broker-dealer, uh, and each of our clients were agents of that broker-dealer in addition to being agents of the investment advisor. And the investment advisor had never obtained uh, a confidentiality agreement with the broker-dealer not to reveal the identities uh, or that established that the contact information of the clients was uh, a trade secret of the investment advisor. So, um, in fact, because the plaintiff had let the information uh, about these clients be distributed to a third party, um, there was no 
it was not not a secret under California law. It's no trade secret. Yeah, and it, it kind of goes. Sounds like it goes to um, you know both questions. Obviously, the the um, you know there's an issue of whether or not something's a, a secret, um, truly a secret, and whether or not the the employer did you know took reasonable measures to keep it secret. And if I understand you correctly, um, what you're saying is these these investment advisors and this investment firm maintained a a client list, if you will. And uh, had they just kept it to themselves, maybe maybe that would have been a trade secret. But to, to service the clients as part of just their regular business of servicing the clients, they gave that information to a, a broker dealer, which actually held the money for the clients. Um, and in giving that information away without any, any agreement, um, they sort of opened it wide open and so it was it was no longer a secret because somebody else had it um and uh that's the end of that yeah yeah so that sounds like um that sounds like a unique situation but uh it definitely highlights the need in any trade secret case to, to really uh see where the information goes um you know in that case the information was given to a, a joint service provider um, without a confidentiality agreement. What, do you think it would have been a? Would there be a significant difference if um, if the investment firm, in that case, had had required the broker dealer to keep the information confidential? Well, I I don't think that was ever reached, but there were arguments in in that particular given the particular situation that uh, I think. Uh, May might well have said no. It won't work even if you had such an agreement, because um, the my clients were fiduciaries of their clients, and um, if they moved, uh, they had a fiduciary duty as agents of the broker dealer to continue to monitor. The client's accounts, and I mean, that, that, that aspect of their business highly regulated. So, uh, in fact, the broker dealer didn't want this information to be a trade secret, uh, because uh, or wouldn't have agreed that it was the investment advisor's trade secret because the the broker dealer wanted these people to still be responsible for their and carry out their responsibilities for the individual uh, clients, or otherwise it would have could conceivably have made a, a big uh, a big mess if the clients were abandoned. So um, we also had that argument that in fact you couldn't you couldn't make it a trade secret given the regulatory. Uh, structure of the investment advising and brokerage business. I see. So if, because they're investment advisors regulated by the SEC and otherwise, um, they have a duty to make sure, uh, you know, to watch over their clients' accounts and make sure that um, the trades that the clients want are getting executed and whatnot and whether they get fired or leave or whatever, that duty does not go away. It's between them and the client 
Um, and that would potentially trump, even if there were agreements between uh, the employer and the joint service provider, broker dealer, um, you know, the, the ability to access, they, they needed to access that information no matter what. Yeah. So that, that, that was the argument. Sounds like um, the injunction and getting that overturned was a big deal. And then the real, um, the real lever uh, in the case was determining that the information that the employer was claiming as a secret was actually uh, given away. Did that, how did that case end up, how did it resolve? Well, it was interesting, also procedurally interesting. So at the start of the trial, we made a motion in limine um, to require an evidentiary hearing on whether the plaintiff could introduce evidence to show that it had uh, a trade secret rights in the client inform contact information. And we contended that they could not prove the uh, preliminary fact that what they had, that information was secret. And the court granted the motion and held a hearing, went on for about five days. Uh, and uh, at the end of the hearing ruled that the information wasn't a secret. Um, so therefore they, the plaintiff could not uh, uh, could not put on evidence that the information was a trade secret. I have used this before in another context, but this is an interesting technique, right? In the trade secret case, you would uh, do this, um, seek this evidentiary pre-hearing. Uh, sometimes, uh, it, well, it's part and parcel to a motion in limine, right? To exclude. Yes. And so um, it often, I think, comes up when you have uh, expert witnesses. I know I've used it uh, to have experts uh, testify and the judge can determine whether or not um, they should be able allowed to testify at trial. Um, but you're saying you can use this technique to have an evidentiary hearing to determine whether or not there's actually a trade secret involved. And, mm -hmm. and if there isn't, um, uh, that's... Again, that's the end of that, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, did you guys, it sounds like you guys had some luck with this. Well, that was the, so yeah, so actually the plaintiff, the investment advising company, the first, the original one, had two basic claims. One was the theft of its, uh, of the contact information for its actual clients. And um, uh, which was established was not a trade secret. So their trade secret claim fell apart at that point. They had a second claim, which was they claimed that the, uh, the my clients had taken their database of leads. Um, these people were not clients, but were, you know, possible clients. And... Uh, so they still had that claim, but they apparently did not view that claim as particularly valuable. So after the ruling on the motion in limine, um, the case settled. Nice, nice work. Um, that's great. So that, that does sound like an interesting technique. And that, that brings up a couple questions I have for you. Um, one is, um, you know, there's another... Uh, 
speaking of techniques that can be used in litigation, in discovery, there is a special rule that um, you can demand in a trade secret case as a precursor to uh, having to, to respond to discovery. Um, you can demand that the plaintiff um, identify their trade secrets. And, um, you know, we've done that and we've fought about the identification, you know, that identification, of course, the, the employer defines it as uh, broad as possible <laughs> in the vaguest terms and the uh, departing employee or whoever's accused of uh, using or misappropriating the trade secret, um, you know, says that's too broad and you got to narrow it down. Um, have you, um, do you have any thoughts about this discovery? I mean, is this one of those ideas um, that, that somebody had that a legislator said, fine, let's put it in there without really thinking how it was going to work out and it has no practical effect? Or um, do you think it's a, an important tool uh, to be used in the process by the defense? Oh, it's definitely an important tool for the defense. And I would suggest to, with regard to plaintiffs, pursuing trade secret claims that they pay a lot of attention to it because uh, judges, um, you know, identifying the trade secrets is, is key. And, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of, of course, employers who bring these suits uh, who basically think that everything, you know, that has the name of the company on it or, has a folder that has the, is in a folder that has the name of the company on it as a trade secret, uh, and they're it, they're vastly o overbroad in terms of what they consider trade trade secrets, um, and in my experience, uh, if you start the defense starts to poke holes in what is it on your list of trade secrets. Uh, the plaintiff's credibility starts to erode very quickly with the judge. I've seen this particularly in federal court, uh, you know, that you just start to poke some holes and say, well, they have 1,200 trade secrets, but we've identified 300 of them, which uh, have been published in periodicals. Um, so they're not trade secrets. And the judge, of course, is now turning to the plaintiff and, you know, getting upset. So, um, so yes, I think it's important on both sides and it's definitely a key. I don't think that, you know, it, the, it's not, it's a requirement under California law, whether it's required under the federal law varies, uh, from court to court, whether they apply it or not. Yeah. Good. Good to know. Um, See, so stepping back a bit, um, you know, we talked about this one case. You've obviously uh, litigated a number of trade secret cases. Um, what um, what are the some of the things that you've learned? Just uh, you know, doing doing more than one, doing more than one, getting into it, seeing the law change over time. It's obviously um, you know one of those areas of law that has changed. Uh, the you know. Uh, there's a federal law now, not just California, um, and uh, you obviously shape the law with the injunction, um, that kind of thing. And and so, you know, whether you want to give advice to uh, litigators on the prosecuting side or the defense side, I mean, or on this issue of, you know, what is a trade secret? I mean, what are some of the inside 
um, tips that you can give somebody that's getting into trade secret litigation? Well, if representing someone who's likely to be a defendant, the earlier you can intervene and take, you know, for instance, if they come to you before they've left their employer, uh, you want to do a very thorough job um, advising them about what it is they can take and what it is they cannot take. And it's very important that they not take anything. Um, in a lot of situations, um, you know, I think that there is a back and forth argument about whether uh, a trade secret can be simply something that's in someone's head, in their memory, or whether you have to actually take a um, uh, ma materials, documents, or files, or code, something that's that's uh, tangible in that way, in order, and that only can be the trade secret. Um, so. And that, I think that might vary depending upon the situation. Certainly in the situation where um, the, uh, uh, where the trade secret is like a customer list, client list, I think there's a good argument that you cannot enforce trade secret uh, prohibitions on someone using their memory. Um, Although you might be able to do it if they had <coughs> the company's customer list on their phone. So um, what you want to do is make sure that your client is as clean as possible when they leave so that they can uh, honestly represent that they walked away with nothing. And, you know, in many situations, like the, the same case we're talking about, I mean, the, the, my clients, they, had, they visited their advisory clients in their homes. So they knew how to get there. And uh, these people called them on their, own, on their cell phones. So they, they had all kinds of means of actually getting in touch with these people. Um, or making contact with them um, that they could utilize outside of having a, a paper or electronic Rolodex of uh, that was in the original employer's possession and taking that for their own use. Yeah, and uh, on the flip side, you know, you're talking about. Um you know, what people can't do, I, you know, I, I get calls obviously all the time about, uh, you know, people leaving and what, what they can take. And I, I try to also tell them what they can take. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what I tell them and you can tell me if it's uh, good or bad and we can, you know, decide to be friends or not after <laughs> that. But <laughs> um, so what I tell them is, look, I, I mean, you know, they, okay, so person A, they want to go, you know, leave their employer, start their own company or or join a competing company. And I say, look, if, if I can get the information, me, Greg Wood, not having worked at your employer, um, either, you know, through the yellow pages or digital means, or I can buy a list, or you mentioned periodicals. Um, I had a, I had a case involving, uh, 
guys that uh, installed flooring and uh, you could, their clients were like, you know, apartment buildings and you you could get the list of apartment buildings from, uh, they had, there was a rental guy that, you know, had a directory in the back and it was basically their customer list. Um, And I said, look, if I can do it, if I, Greg Wood, can go out and, and get the information somehow without working at the company, some legitimate means, not, you know, not through hacking or <laughs> breaking into the building at night, um, then you can take it. But if, if you have to work there uh, to, to get the information and there's no other way to get it, um, then it, there's a good chance that that is, you know, it's at least a, you know, it's got a good chance of being determined to be a trade secret and you should leave it behind. What do you think of that? Well, I uh, turn that around. What is the damage? Uh, how do you assess damages or an injunct- injunctive relief in a trade secret case? And it's it's based either on the advantage which the misappropriator gained by taking the information or by the uh, uh, detriment that the trade secret holder suffered. So in a competitive situation, often what you need to look at is, uh, well, just how much of an advantage did the uh, misappropriator gain? Well, if the misappropriator, you know, in your example, I mean, if the misappropriator could in a day or in a week recreate basically the, the information they had at work, uh, why not? Uh, I would suggest to them, you know, yes, that's an argument. It's not a trade secret. But why force the argument? Don't take that information. Spend a week recreating it from third-party sources. Right, and, right. And then you can say, "Where did? How did you contact all these people?" Well, I, you know, looked them up on X Index, which is available to everybody. Uh, yeah. And you know, then you're you're clean, and you don't have to have the argument that, oh, you know, anybody can do that. And, that you know, lawyers will come. The lawyers on the other side will come up with arguments about why, you know, nobody can do that, and it may all be BS, but you know, gets resolved at a trial. So I think you're much better in in most cases. You know, if you, if the the client can do that, say yeah, spend the extra week or the extra month, even if that's what it takes uh, to minimize your actual your risk of a, of a serious claim. And this is actually uh, important, right? Because when you get down to trial and, and you think about, um, you know, wh- how the evidence is going to be presented, um, if your client can, you know, if the claim is, oh, they, you know, they took our property and they used it. And that's the, you know, that's the, the that's the employer story for the employee to show uh, that no, actually, here's here's my LinkedIn. You know, I, I sent out this batch of um, this batch of communications to these people, which included some of those clients, and it included others or whatever. It showed their efforts 
to drum up business, uh, that would go that would go a long way um, to to showing that they did not use the property, right? That they were they used their own efforts. And yes, they got some of the same clients at the end of the day, but um, maybe they got some new ones, and um, maybe they didn't get them all. Um, is that is that in line yeah. with your thinking? Yes, I think it's also uh, it, it. You know, you want to make once the client once the person who's leaving the employee who's leaving starts to take things, you never know what they take. And, you know, some information may be for just using the customer list uh, concept with well, the names and addresses and maybe the names of the purchasing agents or whatever of the customers uh, you can find there. That's all easy to find. Um, how much they bought of a particular product in the last year at what price? That's probably a trade. That could well be a trade secret. In some instances, it isn't because uh, everybody in the in, in that sector knows what everybody else is doing. But you know, it may be, and uh, I think you run the risk that you know your client either intentionally or inadvertently uh, includes information which and which uh, the employer can make a legitimate claim that that's trade secret information and you had no right to take it. Right. Right. So the idea is uh, if you, if you tell somebody, yeah, you can take the customer list in all likelihood, they're going to take the best customers <laughs> and the best customers, they're, they're not going to take the 3000 that they know aren't going to buy anything because they've been selling to them unsuccessfully for three years. Um, they're going to take the, the 10 that actually, um, buy stuff and mm -hmm. uh, that right there that even even if the names and the numbers for you know can be obtained using other means um, their selection of who to take and what to take uh, puts them at risk exposes them because now they're using information that's really not public that you really can't obtain um, you know maybe maybe mm -hmm. yeah I agree, yeah, I agree. With you. Yeah. 100% glad I set that up for you <laughs> 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 well, I don't have any other questions. Um, thank you very much for uh, joining us. I'm, you know, we are going to see you or hear from you again, given your um, just your wealth of knowledge and your willingness. I, I, I mean, I'm going to keep keep pinging you until you, you know, stop taking my calls. So, okay, um, well, thank you. I appreciate. It's been a pleasure, Greg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you, David. We'll uh, talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, that does it for our first ever Employee Theft Hub podcast. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Thanks, of course, to David Schwartz for giving us his stories and insights. Um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to David again in the future. If you have any questions for me, um, again, my name is Greg Wood. You can reach me at my email, gwood at woodlitigation.com. And uh, feel free to email me any questions you have about trade secrets embezzlement or if you have some other issues. Um, even if I can't help you for some reason, I probably know who can. Happy to point you in the right direction. Have a good one.